Hello and welcome to Eractus Agri-Food Podcast. I'm Julia Dam. I'm Natasha Fitt. And I'm Gerardo Fortuna. And here's your weekly update on all things agriculture and food from the EU, from Eractus Agri-Food News Team. This week, EU agri-ministers getting angsty and talks on agri-trade. So hello and welcome back to the Eractus Agri-Food Podcast. It's an honour this week to have Julia here in the studio. Thank you. Welcome. Happy welcome. to be here. We're very happy to have you. It's an honour to have you here. It's nice, actually. It's quite like a gal power Gal yeah, podcast this week. Uh, <laughs> two of us in the podcast room this week. <laughs> and um, actually, you've come to Brussels for a pretty in a, a pretty fiery week, as it's turned out. Yeah, indeed. It's been quite the, quite the week. Um, it's definitely been worth the trip coming here. There was the first uh, meeting of agriculture ministers and the Swedish presidency, which started uh, with January mm-hmm. uh, last Monday. And it had quite a packed agenda. Uh, lots of stuff going on. Mm. Um, and some of the topics uh, are topics that have been making waves for quite some time now. And we've talked about them uh, before as well in the podcast. So, um, Natasha, there were some more discussions on uh, these grain inflows from mm. Ukraine, which has been quite... Uh, quite a con- contentious topic right mm-hmm. yeah it was yeah it was interesting so th- so well, let me go back a little bit and give a bit of background so combined with there's the, the EU solidarity lanes initiative which are these measures taken to help export of uh, Ukrainian agricultural goods um, and there was also this uh, one year temporary trade liberali- liberalization scheme that suspended tariffs and quotas on agri-food imports from Ukraine now that means there's been an influx of Ukrainian grain, but also other agricultural goods into the EU market. Now, of course, that's a good thing because, you know, we're offering support to Ukraine, which of course needs all the support it can get. Um, But it's caused quite a lot of tension in the neighbouring countries. So we're talking here about Hungary, Romania and Poland. So there was a little bit of discussion about, so this this temporary trade liberalisation scheme is actually up for renewal in June. So, of course, people are starting to think already, like, oh, are we going to continue this? What's the relation? What's the, what's the arrangement going to be? And there was a bit of talk about potentially rethinking this, you know. Uh, so the, the commission, there was a commission representative in the preparation meeting, which happens ahead of the meeting of EU agricultural ministers. And the commission representative there was saying that, yeah, we're, we're starting to rethink this. Now, in the fast forward to the agri-fish <laughs> meeting. With Everyone keep up, keeping up still. Yeah, it's a lot, it's a lot to go through. Um, the agri-fish meeting, instead there was this kind of really strong uh, push um, from the commissioner about saying that, you know, we're going to do everything that we can um, to support Ukraine. We're going to be continuing, um, continuing, trade liberalisation with them. Um, She was saying that no EU countries are pushing for either a restriction or a ban on grain exports from the Ukraine. So that was the the clear line here. And he was also trying to put some rumours to bed. Mm. There was this joint statement um, from agricultural ministers. It actually came from Poland, so the commissioner's home country. There was this joint statement together with um, Bulgaria, Czech Republic, Hungary, Romania and Slovakia. Um, highlighting problems, th- these issues with the imports and, and saying, you know, we need to support the farmers that are coping with this. But there were some rumours that in this statement, in this discussion... Propagated by some of our colleagues at other Brussels media. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. There were some rumours that um, they were trying to uh, restrict or ban, you know, the, these imports. But yes, the Commission was very, very firm in putting these rumours down. Um, and instead, he said that the emphasis had to be on how to support EU farmers that are impacted in the region. Mm-hmm. So 
the question, of course, is well, how do how how to do this? Because you know, it's good to say, well, let's support them, but what are the actual mechanisms in place? What are what are the what's the funding options? Um, and he was leaning quite heavily on the common agricultural policy, the various support measures that are in the common agricultural policy. So he did talk about. He said he was going to um, propose to the college to trigger the crisis reserve. This is something that we've spoken about before. This is not the first time that he said this either. So this crisis reserve is a 450 million euro uh, crisis fund scheme that is designed to, to, to finance exceptional measures and counteract market disruptions. Um, but this needs the agreement of all the EU agricultural ministers. And so it, the jury's kind of out mm. on whether that's actually going to be a viable option. And he also, for the first time, mentioned the idea of temporary storage. Um, so that's another support measure it's set up under the common market organization uh, regulation um, and it's you know supposed to give this safety net for farmers in case of market crises um, and so this is the first time I heard him say that so this was these were the options given on the table at the meeting interesting yeah you can tell as well how they're walking this tightrope of mm. it acknowledging it's a problem but at the same time not questioning support to Ukraine so Absolutely. it's really a rhetoric uh, tightrope walk that all of them and especially the ones from neighboring countries who are very uh, very firm in their support to Ukraine mm. that they have to work it was quite tense and it was quite like a clash of how can I say like a clash of politics with uh, with the farming you know there's clearly so much mm. politics going on the commissioner himself obviously is Polish so he's from the country that one of the countries most impacted and You know, although he was saying, yes, of course, no, everything's fine. We're going to continue this this scheme, etc. He also couldn't really resist adding in a part in the press conference being like, but actually there are loads of problems in, in Poland. And he really stressed about like the poultry sector and stuff. So you, you could kind of see a bit of a conflict. Internal there. struggle going on. A bit of tension going on there. Yeah. Um, but that wasn't all. That wasn't the only discussion that we had there. They were also, um, agriculture ministers were getting pretty angsty this week. There was a lot of angst. And, and one of them was about this, This letter trying to push for more powers, um, Julia. Yeah, indeed. Um, so uh, quite a bit of contention going on in various forms during this week's last week's uh, uh, meeting. So there was a letter that was uh, drafted by uh, the Austrian minister and signed by uh, many other member states, 15 actually. Um, And uh, even during the meeting, additional countries also came out in support of it. So it actually had the backing of uh, a majority of uh, of EU agriculture ministers. And I stress agriculture ministers because this letter was about the agriculture ministers demanding that they should be more involved and get more of a say in environmental legislations that have an impact on farming. So there's been quite a few of these recently, um, including land use uh, legislation, uh, the nature restoration targets, where it's about uh, restoring uh, natural uh, natural sites from, uh, well, among other things, from, from farming use. Mm. Um, and also the carbon storage initiative from the commission, which is obviously a lot about, uh, or as we've talked before, a lot about carbon farming as well. So about measures of uh, storing carbon in the soil through farming techniques. So there's a lot of issues that kind of are at the intersection between uh, environment and farming, or at least have ramifications for farmers. So the ministers are arguing that um, they should get, as the, the experts on agriculture, should get more of a say in this, rather than only the environment ministers being in charge. So they actually asked the Swedish presidency to take action on this. 
Uh, and indeed, it is the presidency together with uh, the secretariat of the council, so the uh, council of ministers, that could take steps here and uh, tweak uh, competences a bit or even set up a joint uh, group or committee between uh, between both sides. And there were, others, there were other countries as well, such as Germany, where the minister actually said ahead of the meeting that he hadn't signed the letter because uh, he gets on perfectly well with his uh, environment minister who's from the same party as him. So that makes things a bit easier. Um, and yeah, there's such harmony between them that it's it's not necessary. Mm. Uh, I suppose that's not true of every country, though. <laughs> no. I guess that's the problem. And even in Germany, it's not completely true. There's definitely yeah. some issues where there aren't um, completely on the same page, such as gene editing. So mm. yeah, well, a lot of projected harmony there, but... Uh, yeah, the reality is a bit complicated. It's funny because it does definitely reflect, I think, what's been increasingly happening even in like our newsroom because oh, I find myself increasingly when there's a topic um, not knowing, is mm. this, should we cover this? Is this our environment colleagues? Um, is this, you know, there's yeah. it's been increasing overlap and you can see it reflected in the way that the agri and the environment ministers are kind of having to work together on these different files. Yeah. Um, with, the, with the difference, of course, that... Uh, we actually do uh, work well with our colleagues. <laughs> we actually get on very well with them <laughs> and happily have joint bylines <laughs> with them. Um, but yeah, there was also, uh, there was something else, another topic that was interesting, uh, which is, well, we could broadly put it under the umbrella of livestock generally, um, because there was also a discussion on uh, how to curb livestock emissions. Mm. Um, and this was all about well, maybe I let you you take the lead on this, Julia. You wrote the article, but this is a, this ongoing discussion about the industrial emissions directive. Um, yes, exactly. So, uh, as as you already mentioned, the name of this um, directive, which is currently being discussed by the member states and by the EU Parliament after it was proposed by the Commission, is uh, yeah, industrial emissions directive. So, this is about curbing emissions from industrial installations, industrial plants. Um, but according to the commission plans, that would include as well large livestock farms. And this is um, yeah, quite a contentious point with uh, agriculture ministers because they argue that, well, there's this kind of general argument that uh, our farmers, family farms, that's not an industrial installation. Hmm. It's ridiculous to say that. Um, but more concretely, there's a lot of contention about where this threshold should be set. So when is a farm big enough to count as an industrial farm? And that's kind of one of the main questions of discussion. And it was discussed as well during during last week's meeting. And, um, well, unusually, ministers actually uh, basically all agreed. Yeah, that is actually an unusual yeah. occurrence, yeah. <laughs> so the fight or the, well, no, the discussion is actually between ministers on one hand and the commission on the other hand, because... Mm. Basically, all ministers think that the threshold set by the commission is too low. So um, the commission proposal foresees that all farms with more than 150 so-called livestock units. Uh, so just to put a little picture to this, it sounds quite abstract. But 150 livestock units means 150 cows or 10,000 laying hens, for example. So because they're smaller, they count for less. Or 500 pigs or 300 sows. So that's kind of the... Um, scope we're talking about. So the commission says that any farm larger than this should count as um, an industrial installation and have to fall under this law and curb its emissions. Um, but ministers think that this is way too low. 
Um, this would include family farms, they say, and um, would create red tape and burdens on uh, small, middle-sized family farms. Um, so the German minister actually proposed a compromise um, for specifically for cattle, which would be double of what the commission wants. So instead of 150 of these units, it would be 300 where we put the threshold. Mm. So fewer farms would be included. Um, but uh, Quite a jump up. Yeah, it's Double. quite a significant um, change. Also because I remember this 150 livestock units was put forward by uh, the Agriculture Commissioner, Janusz Wojcicki. He was quite proud of this. He was pushing for this mm. as a, as he thought it was a, you know, uh, kind of an ambitious number. And now the ministers want to double that number, which is going to yeah. <laughs> it's It will be quite a step. And indeed, the commission wasn't too happy about this. So mm. um, both... Uh, Wojciechowski, um, who you mentioned, and Environment Commissioner Sinkiewicz uh, defended the Commission's proposal and uh, yeah, said that um, the number of 150 should be kept because it makes sense. It's based on the science that the Commission conducted. And, uh, yeah. So a fight's coming up, basically. Yes. It's something uh, we'll be covering more and more. So <laughs> keep your eyes stay on. Stay tuned. Exactly. Stay tuned for all of, the, all of the twists and turns in this tale. And there's one more thing to do with livestock. Uh, which I'll mention only briefly because it's a very good article um, from uh, our latest recruit, Paula Andres, is on uh, your active website. But there was also this real pushback from EU agricultural ministers. They really, when we say they've been fiery and active and angsty this week, it's, you yeah. know, it was strong, it was strong. There's also been a coalition of EU agriculture ministers that have joined forces, they, they joined forces last week, to push back against a potential ban on live animal transport to third countries. Um, so there was this exchange between um, EU agriculture ministers and the Commission um, about this idea of banning live animal exports. And they, the ministers essentially were saying, well, some ministers, not all actually, but some ministers were saying that um, the Commission's revision of the, the, looking at animal welfare legislation, which uh, the overhaul is the proposals expected um, in the second half of 2023, um, they were saying that basically this revision needs to uh, needs to look at ways to improve kind of animal animal welfare in live sport in live export rather than a total ban itself. Um, and they're basically saying that, you know, it's a very visible part of the agri-food sector and that's why there's a lot of public attention and, and, and interest. Mm -hmm. But they were saying that a, a ban is is very sensitive, it will have m uh, massive ramifications on the livestock sector. Um, and that's, you know, obviously echoed by the farmers. Uh, the farmers are very worried about this as well. Um, but the commission really pushed back on this. And they were saying, you know, in light of scientific evidence, doing nothing's not an option on this. Um, and so there's a big discussion about transport. Like I said, there's a very good article on this on your active so if you're interested go and check it out this week our special guest is arancha gonzalez uh, she's a former spanish minister uh, of foreign affairs and she's currently dean of the paris school of international affairs at Sciences po so we're going to be talking about everything agri-trade, uh, its public perception, mirror clauses, and also the impact of Ukraine trade on the EU. We're having a lot of uh, tensions from geopolitical point of view, from uh, uh, the economic point of view, commodity prices are on the rise. Uh, what's your global take uh, on uh, the current situation when it comes to the trade relationship at the global level? So uh, international trade is subjected to uh, 
bigger stresses. Um, you know, we've seen the COVID crisis that uh, had a huge impact on international trade. We've now seen uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, as disrupting also markets as important as food, fuel and fertilizers. And we also have uh, uh, the rivalry between the US and China uh, looming big in the horizon. And over and above that, uh, discontent in many countries with, uh, and in many constituencies, uh, over um, the rise of inequalities, uh, the lowering of uh, workers' uh, standards, uh, which is attributed to international trade, even if very often, uh, more often uh, than none, uh, it's not the product of international trade, but rather the product of the technological advancements and uh, domestic policies that are not working to um, foster inclusiveness. So all these are forces that are playing against international trade, inequalities, geopolitics, um, conflict, um, um, that can lead to uh, what I think would be uh, the worst possible outcome, which is uh, fragmenting uh, the level playing field, fragmenting the world into different regulatory systems uh, that uh, would reduce efficiency, that would diminish the possibilities for smaller countries and poorer countries, but also smaller traders uh, to uh, access international markets, to drive innovation and competitiveness through that and that would have uh, also a huge inflationary impact. So for all these reasons, I think we need to reset international trade. Uh, we need to ensure it is more sensitive uh, to security concerns, to geopolitics, more sensitive to sustainability concerns, um, and that it works better with other domestic policies uh, to protect uh, workers. It's interesting because uh, um, there's a lot of uh, worries about the current situation on the markets. But at the same time, if you look at the recent Eurobarometer, there's a majority of um, uh, EU citizens that is in favor of, tra in, uh, of trade, but it's not that big. So how uh, the current situation could impact also on the public opinion perception of uh, trade? Well, it's important to explain to the public, uh, to the citizens in Europe, how important trade is for the European economy. Trade is important because basically the world is growing faster and bigger than the EU is, and therefore part of our growth, part of our jobs, depend on keeping markets open. Um, if you take uh, the topic of food, uh, it's important to remind European citizens that the EU is the world number one uh, food exporter, and that it is a net food exporter, meaning that it exports more than it imports, uh, that 35 million jobs in the European Union are also dependent on keeping markets open for farmers and food producers in Europe. So I think it's important to um, explain that for Europe, open markets is essential to its competitiveness and to its jobs. But we also have to be clear with the European citizen that trade needs to be married more with sustainability, with the fight uh, that we want against climate change, but also with social sustainability, with a reduction of inequalities, and that uh, trade also has to be more sensitive to security concerns. And this is why I think uh, in Europe it has to be, uh, as the European Commission has said, rightly so, 
about openness, sustainability, and assertiveness. Thus, making sure the three are intertwined. And I would say a fourth one, uh, which is making sure that policies around trade are better connected with other policies, social safety nets, education, taxation, infrastructure, digitalization that are essential uh, to a more inclusive future. There's also an interesting debate in Europe uh, it probably started already when uh, you had the previous uh, governmental role, um, but uh, it's about mirror clauses. So uh, basically, if we have to uh, impose our sustainability standards that are quite high uh, for you farmers, also to products that we import from uh, third countries. So I don't know what's your take on uh, on how this could be accepted or not in trade negotiations, also considering your experience. Um, if they might see as uh, this as a way of, uh, uh, you know, exercise protectionism when it comes to the... Well, first it's important to say that we are not imposing uh, constraints on European actors. European citizens care about sustainability. They care about the food, the quality of the food they consume, they care about the manner in which the food has been produced, they care about uh, the condition of farmers um, and uh, workers and their rights. So um, I understand uh, why the European uh, legislator has to cater for this important sensitivity in the European citizenship, right? If you ask uh, the European youth, they would tell you the number one concern is the fight against climate change. So we cannot delink uh, what citizens expect from what legislators produce in terms of legislation. But what we have to do, and therefore it's normal that there is a race to the top uh, in terms of uh, standards for food, in terms of um, procedures to make sure the value chains are transparent and they are sustainable and the workers' rights are respected. Not only in Europe, the ambition of Europe is that also the products that will be consumed by European citizens imported from outside the EU uh, will respect those standards. Now, the question is, what's the best way to do that? And in my view, um, it would be important to make sure that this legislation that the EU produces that has an impact on uh, suppliers in third countries be done in a dialogue with third countries so that it doesn't become a surprise to them, so that they have a say in how this uh, legislation is crafted, so that they don't have a feeling that it is done for protectionist purposes. Now, the, the EU may not do this to, for protectionist reasons. They may do it to protect or to, um, to um, uphold values that are dear to the European uh, citizens, but they, they have to make sure that they also respond uh, to suppliers in third countries, many of whom are small suppliers uh, in countries where meeting those standards uh, will be costly. So the sooner the debate starts with them, the more they will be a buy-in uh, on these actors who also care about sustainability and uh, workers' rights. And it's um, what you're saying uh, is echoing the words of uh, a guest. We had a guest uh, in uh, some months ago in the podcast, and it was the the agriculture and trade minister of New Zealand, and he was basically saying the same stuff. So uh, they created during the negotiation this sustainable food chapter, and uh, it's, it's a bit like the dialogue that, that you were mentioning. Uh, and a very nice question on. Um, Let's call it case study that we are experiencing uh, in this very moment. Uh, last year, uh, in the aftermath of in the aftermath of the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, 
um, the Commission proposed, and it was approved by the EU lawmakers, a trade liberalisation. Uh, so the, the, they scrapped the import quota and tariffs from Ukraine for all the Ukrainian uh, um, exports to the EU. Um, it was for one year, it was temporary. Some European farmers uh, were preoccupied and are asking the Commission to reconsider this trade, trade liberalization. So what's your take for this uh, potential frictions that could be arise from uh, um, liberalization with Ukraine, but also with other countries? Well, I, I would make a big distinction between Ukraine, who is at war, mm. and where the EU has to do everything that it can to support Ukraine and its citizens and its economy, including the agricultural community, and if this means opening the EU markets unrestricted, then so be it. We are, for us, it is essential to help Ukraine as much as we can. And I would distinguish this from uh, other trading relations, no, let's say, quote-unquote, normal trading relations with countries that are uh, not at war. So yeah. I would make this a uh, big distinction, but I think, um, uh, and therefore I would not mix uh, the two. Suffice it to say that as far as grains is concerned, which is the bulk of, uh, uh, which is the, the backdrop of this question, um, what uh, we have seen is that cereal markets, which are shallow markets, only about 25% uh, of world wheat uh, is traded, only about 5% of uh, uh, rice produced is traded. In shallow markets, we need to be very careful with measures that are taken to upset those markets, because the livelihoods of millions depend on that. The livelihoods of many citizens around the world depend on markets that are stable and therefore taking decisions uh, that will go in the direction of stabilizing markets that, as I said, are shallow uh, by definition uh, would, uh, would be a step in the right direction. And uh, taking uh, restrictions to export uh, products in shallow markets should be avoided because it has a disproportionate negative impact uh, on the livelihoods of millions around the world. So that's all from us this week. This week, the AgriFood podcast, like every week, was produced by Euractiv's AgriFood news team, Natasha Foot, Gerardo Fortuna, and Julia Dam, with the technical support of Evic Chiori. You can also find this podcast on all major streaming platforms. That includes Amazon, Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter so you don't miss the latest news from the EU. I'm Natasha Foot. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week. Mm -hmm.